Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the cutting edge doc. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and transformation. And I'm very excited about today's show. Today we have as our guest, Lynn McTaggart. Lynn is one of my favorite people in the whole world, and it's been a little bit over four years since I interviewed Lynn last, and so now we have the wonders of podcasting, which makes it even easier to share Lynn with with the world and to share Lynn with you. And uh, you can read about Lynn's bio on our website at cuttingedgedoc.com, but just want to let you know that Lynn is a journalist who, uh, American-born, right, Lynn? I am. I'm a Jersey girl, David. Right, and has been living with her husband for many years in London and is the author of several important books of The Field, The Intention, is it The Intention Experiment? The Intention Experiment. And The Bond. And uh, all of these books have to do with the uh, uh, helping people to uh, have the field, the quantum field, be more real for them, and then exploring the implications and the applications of consciously taking responsibility for and working with the field. And uh, the book, The Field, is probably either the book or one of the books that I recommend more to people than just about any other book because it introduces a whole way of being and a whole way of looking at reality that if somebody can grok it and get the big idea, it opens up all sorts of possibilities that make it difficult. It's Otherwise, it's difficult to open up to some of these possibilities. And I say that these possibilities that that book opens up for people is one of the keys to being able to thrive in today's world. And so I know, Lynn, you know, you've done hundreds of interviews and welcome to Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. Thank you so much. And thank you for that introduction. I don't think I have to say anything now anymore, David. <laughs> well, you know, I like to go places where we don't, where you don't usually go in other interviews because these are in-depth interviews. And one of the things I'd like to give you a chance to do that maybe you don't get a chance to do in a lot of your interviews is to tell your story about how you got to discover the field and how you became so fascinated with the field and want to give you some time to kind of tell your story in that context. And then I want to ask you some questions about a couple of things in the field that I thought were particularly fascinating. And then, uh, and then we'll move on from there. And I want to make sure you have time toward the end to talk about what you're up to these days and what you're most concerned about and what you're most excited about and to give you a chance to give the listeners uh, any information they might need to connect with you and your work. So maybe we could start with your story, your personal story with an eye toward how you discovered and became so fascinated and passionate about the field. 
Well, it I sort of backed into it, David. Um, I run a, a, with my husband a magazine called What Doctors Don't Tell You, which has been going for many years as a newsletter, and now it's a magazine. I'm thrilled to say um, in in 14 countries around the world. In the process of researching that, um, which is you know we we rely on medical evidence basically to show that a lot of medicine is dangerous and unproven, and that also a lot of alternative medicine has much more evidence than people think. So we study the medical literature, basically. And in the course of doing that, I kept coming across very good studies of things like spiritual healing and homeopathy. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, if you can have a thought and send it to someone else and make that person better, then that in itself completely undermines everything we think about how the world works. So I wanted to find out why. I mean, most of my work has been really driven by my enthusiasms and curiosity, to be honest. And um, I wanted to find out why this could be. And so I thought to myself, well, I'll talk to a couple of leading edge scientists. They'll explain to me how this all works. And then, you know, I'll write it up and that'll be that. Um, but what I didn't expect was that each of the scientists I spoke to were, first of all, on, on the verge of discoveries that completely changed the way we think the world works. And secondly, that each of them had discovered just a little patch, but they were very unwilling to speculate from that, to say, well, what does this all mean? Because scientists are taught not to speculate. And so I realized with growing alarm that if anyone was going to have to put this all together, it was going to have to be me. So I had to take a bit of a crash course in quantum physics and a number of other aspects of new science in order to do that and to understand what they were talking about and to decode what they talk about, because scientists talk in math, you know, they don't, they don't talk in, in normal language. And so to decode what they said into something that was completely understandable by everybody, that all was going to be a, a tall order. So that's really how I got into it. But, you know, I didn't even know what I was looking for when I first suggested this book to a publisher. In a way, it was a bit of a confidence trick because I, you know, I thought there might be something like energy fields out there. What I didn't expect is that there was going to be evidence that we're all connected via a quantum field. What was your background and what had you studied? Be, you know, what was your background? Like, what were you, what were you trained in? What were you good at? What were your, what were your particular talents and strengths and areas of expertise going into this? Nothing. Um, I studied uh, literature at university. That's what I got my degree in. Um, I had written about science. I had a background as an investigative reporter. Um, I had started out life exposing, you know, wrongs in a, a, a number of areas. My first book was on baby selling. And so I was used to a kind of very in-depth type of investigative reporting, um, which has held me in good stead because it's, um, you know, reporters like that tend to be very skeptical, very suspicious, and are always looking for proof. So that's been a good trait, take, coming into this area that is filled with a lot of, you know, 
unreconstructed woo-woo, basically. And so that was, that was good. Um, but science, I had drifted toward writing about science as a young journalist, and more and more was writing about medical science. But I didn't know anything about physics, nothing about physics. And so really I approached the book as a reporter would by interviewing the, uh, the principal scientists who had made these discoveries 17, 18, 20 times. And we would go through things on a very basic level, really via metaphor. And I would talk to them and say, okay, so tell me what quantum co coherence means. And they would say this and this and this. And I'd say, oh, that sounds to me like a little bit like a, you know, a marching band where everybody's an individual, but they're all marching in step. And they would say, yeah, that's pretty much what it's like. And that's how we co communicated back and forth. Um, and then I certainly read a lot about it, the subject as well. I read a lot about their papers. I read a lot of their papers. And I just schooled myself in, in the subject. I was wondering how you got them to be willing to talk to a, a non-scientist. Or it sounds like you, you, you learned as much as you could from their papers so that you had some point of connection. No, I started out really basic, in a basic way, asking them some really basic questions. I think if people ask reasonable and intelligent questions, people don't mind answering them. And as long as you're listening to what's going on, people don't mind. But, you know, if there's anything I'm trained in, I'm trained in getting people to talk to me. And so that's what reporters do. And so I'm, I'm, I'm quite reasonably good at that, getting people to talk. So I think I just started out meeting them and got to know them. And, you know, reporters take their time. You take your time, you get to know someone, you get them to trust you, they open up, they talk to you. And, you know, if you talk to somebody 15, 18, 20 times, um, and they understand that you're on a reasonable mission, and you're not out to destroy their reputation or whatever that you sincerely, sincerely want to understand, then they are willing to talk. Were you getting into sensitive areas such that uh, some of the things people told you they would only tell you if it was off the record? Um, most of what had happened that was sensitive was sensitive because of their career. Right. Um, and a lot of them had already been really castigated for the stuff they did. I mean, these were really brave people who had come up with some, you know, a square peg that didn't fit into the round hole of accepted scientific theory. And, you know, when that happens in science, you would think that all scientists are supposed to be open-minded explorers, but just the opposite is the case. It's a very closed club about what's accepted and what isn't accepted in science. And so many of these guys and women were, you know, held up as heretics and they were castigated in some way. They, they lost their jobs. They lost their standing in the scientific community. They were very brave. So that was the sort of thing. There were one or two things that they were sensitive about. Um, uh, but in the main, no, they knew my, my tape recorder was always on. So these were people who had already jumped off the career cliff, so to speak. In some ways, some of them hadn't. Uh, some of them were a little careful about some things because they were still working for, you know, uh, 
organizations, governmental organizations or something like that. But in the main, no. I mean, we were talking about really discoveries of theirs that didn't fit, but that made, that had big, big implications. Now, did you have a background in spirituality prior to this, such that when you started finding out about the field from a scientific point of view, you were able to correlate it back to uh, things that spiritual teachers had pointed to throughout the ages, or did you sort of back end into that side of it? Um, I'd always been interested in the big questions, you know, um, you know, life after death, extrasensory perception, um, near-death experiences, all of those kinds of consciousness, all of that kind of thing had been always a, an interest of mine, but probably not a pressing, pressing interest. It had always been something that was on my radar and interesting to okay. me. But the discoveries that I made when putting together the field were such that I think they really did change the messenger because I suddenly realized huge things that, you know, if this is true and that if the world, we, as we thought and understood it, is, is wrong and that there's another view of reality that is now replacing that view, then so many things have to change. We have to change the way we relate to each other. We have to change so many things because we are, you know, we almost have to begin again, basically. So right. uh, that affected me deeply more than anything else. And I get a sense also, excuse me, <clears throat> I get a sense also that one of the things that has been sort of a thread through your life has been a commitment to, to social justice. Yeah, that's always been something. I'm a, I'm a campaigner. <laughs> right. And uh, that's always been a, the case from the first, I think that was what interested me about being an investigative reporter all those years ago. Um, there was always a, a wrong to right, you know, and I was very influenced as a, as a young person by Woodward and Bernstein because, you know, here had been these two young journalists who had brought down a corrupt presidency. And I thought, wow, that's a really important job. I want to do that. You know, right. that is really, that's, that's important. That, that's significant. That's a service. So I kept thinking of journalism always as the fourth estate, you know, the thing that really safeguards the public interest. And I suppose that, that idea has never left me. And it's only been channeled into things like medicine. So for 26 years, in all the time we've been running What Doctors Don't Tell You, it's all about helping the people get information they can't get anywhere else that will help them protect and control their own health. Right. Have you written at all or spoken at all about the implications of the quantum field view of reality as it relates to issues of ethics and morality and social justice? Oh, yeah. That's my book, The Bond. Um, you know, I thought of those three books in a way as a trilogy. I didn't design them like that, but they came out like that. So after the field, I was curious about some, a, a number of scientists who had carried out studies showing that thoughts are, are an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter. And so I, you know, being the down-to-earth reporter that I basically am, 
I said, okay, how all purpose is this power that we have? You know, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about just shifting a quantum particle or are we talking about curing cancer? You know, what can you do with it? So that's what the intention experiment meant to be was a study looking at how far we can take this by involving my readers in ongoing experiments, uh, big intention experiments that were set up in laboratories or monitored by you know, one or more scientists. Now with the bond, the third book, it was all about looking at, okay, well, if this is the case, you know, if we're all connected, if, you know, if we can, if we can use our thoughts to change reality, if we're co-creating our world, if all of those things are the case, were we meant to be the kind of competitive individuals that are described in current science? You know, the likes of Richard Dawkins, who basically say we were born to be selfish and, and selfish is good, as Adam Smith says, basically. Greed is good. You know, it drives the public interest. And that didn't make any sense to me, given what I discovered with the field. So with the bond, I really wanted to say, okay, if, if all of this new reality is the case, how do we live? How do we put this into our lives? How do we relate to each other, uh, if not competitively, if not you know, life is a race to the finish line. What is it, what would it look like instead? So that's what that book was meant to be, the answer to that. Great, so it sounds like that really, that really brought it together for you in terms of what you're all about. Um, did you ever have the opportunity living in London to either just informally or formally interview or speak with Rupert Sheldrake? Oh, Rupert's a good friend. Okay. A good friend. No, we know each other really well. Yeah, we're on podiums together all the time, and we, you know, we we get together for dinner, etc. No, he's a dear friend. Because I think the two of you have really, you know, in my mind, done the most to extend the the idea in a powerful way of the field to intelligent lay people everywhere, and uh, it's great to know that you guys are friends and supporting each other. Oh, definitely. I mean, Rupert is so brave. Rupert, you know, there's a bunch of skeptics, particularly in this this country, the UK, um, but also in the States. Um, a number of them are paid lobbyists for special interests, but they come on and they try to derail, you know, defile people like us on our um, Wikipedia pages, on things like that. And Rupert doesn't take this lying down. He, um, he set up a skeptical about skeptics website and he <laughs> exposes them, you know, and he will get after them. He's really, really great. Well, you know, I think his book about the, I don't know what he calls it, but it's basically the, the 10 myths or the 10 blind spots of science. Oh, yes. yes. Uh, I, think, I think that is almost cannot be refuted. Yes, I know. It's required reading. It really is. He's he's a great he's a great guy. He really is, you know. And um, we found we've talked a lot about uh, skeptics because the skeptics came after us with what doctors don't tell you. And we're I mean, they did all sorts of things. They tried to um, they wrote to all of our our um, the stores that carry us over here in the UK. They write to they wrote to our distributors. They managed to get a, a 
a spoof website up. They even managed to place a story in the London Times. And we were at first, you know, shocked by all of this because there was nothing, nothing in any way correct about um, what was in that article about us. It was all lies that had been fed by the by these skeptics. Uh, and I was particularly shocked being a journalist, watching this terrible journalism get placed in the paper of record here. Um, but I took a leaf out of Rupert's book and I started taking the fight to them, so to speak, by going on Facebook because the Times wouldn't print any apologies or corrections or anything. And basically just saying, you know, just challenging the Times and saying, you call that journalism? Here's what was wrong with your story, you know, <laughs> listing, not just trying to defend us, listing what was wrong journalistically with the way he'd approached it. And the journalist was so freaked out that he started coming on our Facebook page and, and engaging with my fan base, which was just hilarious, who were all, you know, after him for his bad journalism. And so it was quite interesting. We, we were able to use... Um, social media for, you know, to, to counter the skeptics in that they had managed to write, they had a phony letter writing campaign attacking us that resulted in us being taken out of a short store chain called Tesco. Now Tesco got as a result, so many tens of thousands of people who were our supporters, who now were starting to boycott the store that they put us back in. So, and again, we started it on social media, but then our readers were sending it out around and they'd have a picture of a, a person with a mask across his face and it was what Tesco won't sell you, you know, and <laughs> just, you know, playing with our, playing with on our title. So it was all quite interesting. And, you know, as I say, I learned a lot from Rupert in terms of just uh, not taking this stuff lying down, but standing up for what, what, you know, what you believe in. Did you ever get a, uh, a formal apology or retraction? Oh, no, 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 no. No, they did the grown-up thing and wrote a second story about us. <laughs> okay. So, and, but, you know, crazily enough when they did, um, because they were very stung by the criticism. And so they wrote, a, because they hadn't even bothered to interview us. It was just shabby, shabby journalism. So they were determined to do it again. But what mm. they didn't realize is they, they published the, the current, our, our then new issue. I think it was a November issue of the magazine. And it promptly sold out. So, <laughs> so I don't think what they expected to happen did happen. Um, but no, that, no, of course not. We didn't. Okay, well, I'd like to shift gears and uh, give you a chance to talk about a, something you talked about in the field because I think it's so important. It's almost like a, an object lesson and an acid test for people's worldviews and also is a great lesson in the politics of science. I wanted to give you a chance to go into some detail about homeopathy and about the work of is it pronounced Benveniste? Yeah, Jacques Benveniste. Because the work that he did challenges the prevailing accepted Cartesian Newtonian view of the world. And so for scientists or individuals to confront what Benveniste did and the results that he got and the fact that 
The results have been duplicated in multiple laboratories. It takes a lot of courage to confront this, but once you do confront it, in my view, it opens up a whole possibility for a new way of being and living. So I wanted to give you a chance to tell the the Benveniste story. Okay, well, Jacques Benveniste is one of those scientists who was revered in France. I mean, he had uh, been an allergy specialist and was one of the people who would have been considered for a Nobel Prize for some of his discoveries. But one day, a uh, lab assistant, they were, they were looking at a variety of uh, allergy effects and basically by taking one molecule and exposing it to another to see how it would affect the, the first one. And he looked at her results and said, this is ridiculous, something is wrong. You have diluted this substance so much, you're dealing with plain water. It shouldn't be working, so your figures must be wrong. So she did it again, and the same thing occurred. So this sparked his interest. This is what a true scientist is. Um, somebody who is willing to go into foreign terrain, even if he, it, it counters the map, basically, even if it counters everything that you've been taught. So he was fascinated by this. And so he started experimenting by highly diluting um, certain substances so that nothing of the original, no molecules of the original substance were uh, still there. And then exposing this water, essentially, to a molecule that ordinarily would have reacted with that first molecule that had been diluted. And he found that no matter how he diluted them, the second molecule would still react as though it was in a chemical reaction with another molecule. So he realized this is really important. Water somehow has a memory. And he began doing these kinds of studies. Now, the most, one of the most shameful, shameful episodes in scientific history occurred next. Um, I believe it was uh, the prestigious science magazine, uh, Nature, um, sent, he wanted to try to, first of all, it published uh, Benvenista's results, showing that high dilutions can affect chemical changes, therefore demonstrating that something like homeopathy works. Um, and But then they sent down um, a, uh, I think it was the editor-in-chief, plus a quackbuster, James Randi, you know, who is a known, you know, well, he's, he's a magician, basically. And they manipulated a bunch of different things um, they changed some of the protocol and they finally got the result that they thought they were going to have, that they probably the result they wanted, and uh, basically published an article saying that, that what Ben Benista had come up with was a fake. So his reputation was in tatters, but he was a very stubborn man and he decided he got private funding, he set up camp in a porta cabin basically. And he carried on with his research. And one of the things he realized that was so profound was that every molecule has a sound, its own unique sound. Now, not a sound like a sound the human ear can hear, 
but a very low-level sound nonetheless, something that's below the ability of the human ear, ear to hear, but is still a sound nevertheless. And that these frequencies, when these frequencies are played to another chemical, another, you know, another uh, molecule, it will affect a chemical reaction, just as if the original substance were, were there. And so he would actually record these sounds and then play them to other molecules, and the molecule would undergo a chemical reaction as though it were there. He even did it with robots. So this held unbelievable implications. Number one, it demonstrated that molecules talk to each other, not by chemical reaction, which is way too slow to account for the um, instantaneous reactions that go on at every moment in the human body. But secondly, that, um, that the frequencies are basically the language of the cell. The cell communicates and the body communicates with itself through frequency. And secondly, what's really important here is water. I mean, water is a total anarchist. You know, scientists spend their lives trying to figure out what water, how water works and could spend another lifetime and they still won't get it. It has so many different, something like 71 anomalous properties. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things we know, <clears throat> we know this through a number of Italian phys physicists, is that water is basically, ha it has a memory. Water is like a tape recorder. The molecules of water tend to polarize around any charged particle um, and essentially tape record it. And not only Benveniste, but now after him, Nobel Prize winner Luc Montagne, the co-discoverer of the HIV virus, has agreed with him and basically said, water stores information. So this has huge implications for us. As you say, it changes everything about how we think the world works. It suggests that, you know, if you think about it, we are about 80% water, human beings. Plants are 90% water. You know, water, it's three quarters of, of the planet. And so if water is a tape recorder, imagine what we are transmitting at every moment. Imagine what is being picked up at every moment. You know, people are walking around as vessels of water containing all kinds of information and memory. So it has vast implications, not only for inside our biology, but also, in a sense, how we relate to each other. Do you know how Benveniste captured the sound of a particular molecule? Was he using like a a Tesla coil and a computer sound card, or how, how was he I think he was. Doing? I think he was, yeah. He was using sound cards. He was using computers. In fact, he sent over, um, I think he sent over, at that time it was a floppy disk. He'd send it over to Chicago uh, and have a, have a colleague of his play it to a, a chemical, you know, a, another molecule, and affect a chemical reaction. It was really quite amazing. So we're talking about antigen-antibody reactions that are being demonstrated even though uh, from a uh, Newtonian point of view, there is no more antigen. Exactly, exactly right. that. So um, were, were other labs around the world able to duplicate Benveniste's work and was that ever acknowledged? 
they were able to um, to duplicate his work, and they were. Uh, I think they were never formally acknowledged. I think there were so many people trying to discredit his work that even tried to and couldn't, and just grudgingly kind of admitted that they'd actually replicated it. But he died without any kind of recognition, other than Luc Montagne, who has basically been gone on record to say that he was, you know, a, a 20th century Galileo. Well, maybe we can dedicate this interview to uh, to Benveniste. I think that would be great. I mean, there are a number of wonderful pioneers that I wrote about in the in the field that have passed on uh, recently. Edgar Mitchell just the other day, which was just so sad because in a way, Ed Mitchell, the 14th astronaut to go, Apollo astronaut, um, came back from the moon um, and had this amazing epiphany, a blinding epiphany of meaning of, you know, feeling the universe being all connected. And he spent probably the rest of his life trying to figure out what on earth had happened to him out there. Um, and he was, in a sense, one of the real instigators for research into this area. And then, of course, um, the wonderful German physicist, Fritz Albert Popp, whom we lost a year ago. I mean, he was a, a brilliant, brilliant um, man who realized that all living things are sending out a tiny current of light and that this light most likely drives all the processes in the body that is coming from DNA, but also it's a means of communicating with the outside world because he found in so many experiments that other living things are sending light back almost synchronicitously. So we're beaming and we're receiving at every moment. You know, I can validate a lot of these things from my personal experience in my professional practice as a holistic doctor. I've had tremendous benefits uh, with the right homeopathic remedy. I've had tremendous benefits using a uh, cold scalar laser. I've had tremendous benefits using devices that structure water. So I can, I can speak from personal experience about the uh, fact that we're dealing with something that has real impact. And so it, it's, it's just very exciting. And I, uh, you know, you've touched on a lot of things I was going to ask you to talk about. I was going to ask you to talk about Pop's work and about water. Are you familiar with the book that's been written just in the last year, I believe, called The Water Codes? No. So I'd highly recommend to you a book called The Water Codes by Dr. Carly Newday, N-U-D-A-Y. Mm -hmm. She does a great job of reviewing the science and then relating it to um, many of the major um, religions uh, and what some of the deeper texts were talking about. It's really, really well done. I think um, water, I think water is so interesting. I mean, a number of the intention experiments that we've run um, over the years, and we've run them with a number of scientists, including the late Rustam Roy, who was one of the world's experts on water. Um, he was always really clear that water has always played a part in so many traditional um, ceremonies through the ages 
that yeah. it's there had to be something a really important property to it and he believed that because of a, a thing called van der Waal bonds which are very weak bonds between hydrogen and oxygen the bonds of of water that they configure in different ways so the little molecules of the h2o molecules configure in very different ways in depending on the the type of water and so his view was very strongly that all kinds of subtle energies, including energies related to thought, could uh, affect the structure of water. So that, of course, has big implications when you think about all of these religious practices over the centuries. I think uh, the photographs that Emoto took provide a lot of support for that viewpoint, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we... Um, found that uh, there were a number of the studies that we tried with water that demonstrated that water has the capacity to be very easily changed. Um, we did a big intention experiment to purify some lake water in Japan with Emoto, and we invited my audience around the world to participate, and we moved it by a full pH. Wow. Um Shifting gears again, um, what's it like for you to, you know, with the consciousness that you're, you have right now and your awareness, what's it like for you to be living in London? Um, that's a big, long question. <laughs> um, I think, you know, there's a lot of really great things about London. Um, the city itself is wonderful. Um, it's a beautiful, vibrant city. Um, it's, there's a really interesting sense of always when you are a, a foreigner, when you are somebody from a foreign country, of always feeling slightly foreign. Because even though we speak the same language, we have completely different codes of, that are kind of both underwater and, and particularly in Britain, and to some degree underwater with the US. Um, and so one always feels a little bit foreign. Um, with the consciousness that and the stuff that I do, um, you know, in some other ways, London is probably where I hide out because, you know, until recently I was, you know, a hockey mom, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's what one of my, one of my uh, personas would be is just the mom of, of two girls, you know, to some people. And they didn't necessarily know that I was running intention experiments. And so I think there's, you know, it's a really interesting place to be because I, I, I suppose I have another persona here. I was wondering if you felt a responsibility kind of as a light worker of sorts to be there right now, to be holding a certain frequency there or whether it's just more practical, just that your, your husband is there. So you're there. I, I didn't know where you're coming from in terms of choosing to be in London. Um, I don't have a geography for being a light worker. I mean, I feel that particularly with the internet, um, I feel that we are, you know, our work is international. The work I do is international. So it didn't, doesn't really matter where I am. And really now with our, even our magazine work with what doctors don't tell you, it's now international. Um, we have an, um, we are now publishing in America ourselves as well as the UK. So we are in both places as well as 12 other countries. So I never think of myself as just being, you know, oh, well, here's where I direct my energy. Um, I direct it out, out 
to the world, basically. Um, so the London thing is really a, a practical, um, and there were certain choices to be made for schooling for our girls who are now, you know, one's grown up and one's nearly off to university. So um, that portion of my life will change. But I think a lot of it had to do with, with the children and just deciding where the best place was for them. And I think it was more a case of feeling like, you know, America is really so broken. It's so big and it's so broken in so many ways. Um, it was, you know, getting worrying to me. And I saw a big change from the 1980s when I left there um, to come to the UK. Um, <clears throat> there had been, and I could never figure out what it was until I read this wonderful, wonderful essay. I believe it was in Foreign Affairs, which talked about how there had been an unspoken pact between politicians, heads of university, heads of corporation, um, all of the leaders, the intellectual leaders of America, everyone, to do certain things for the common good in the 60s or so. And at the time, you know, the lobbying system was non-existent. And to look at it from there to the 80s when the big change happened with the rise of the lobbying systems and the overrunning of corporate America, um, I, it, it explained a lot to me about why it seemed so different every time I went back there. So um, I, for myself, I think practically I felt like the UK is a little more manageable. It's, there still is a sense of, there is a growing divide but there was still a sense of the common good. I understand. Do you have any thoughts about the, about the whole Bernie Sanders phenomena? Well, I think that's so interesting. And the same thing has happened over here. There's a rise of a Labour Party candidate who is very left-wing as well. I think this is really all indicative of the fact that people are so sick of politics as usual. They recognize the system is so broken. They were disappointed with, it, with what's happened over the last eight years. They want a radical shakeup. They want to remove the corporation from politics. And, and I think it's just so interesting that there is this rise, this, and particularly we're seeing it so much among the young who are so dissatisfied. I mean, here, over here, it's shocking what has happened to real estate, for instance. So young people, things are so expensive now, largely because big business, you know, uh, very wealthy people have come into England, to London, invested. Real estate has gone through the roof. And so, in a sense, our generation is destroying it for the next generation who have to make a, an absurd amount of money to just buy a property. So it's, whereas it was very, very affordable when I first got here in the 80s. To, to well, it's buy the same it. thing that, it's the same thing that's happened here in the San Francisco Bay Area. You've got a situation that's becoming so stratified that basically in order to get teachers to work here, they have to, you know, partially subsidize their their housing. So it's getting to be it's getting to be so obtuse that it's getting to that point. And so I, I hear exactly what you're saying. And there are a lot of creative people here in the Bay Area who who don't want to play the the money game here and are leaving. So I know exactly 
I know exactly what you're talking about. So, uh, yeah, so I think it's really interesting what's happening with politics now is <clears throat> you see it with uh, whether it's the radical left, the radical right. People are just saying, I'm really sick of this corporate-led um, government. Uh, and it's on both sides of the Atlantic happening, too. And it's in Europe. It's happening in Europe, too, um, where um, people are fed up with the giant, bloated bureaucracy that is the Brussels uh, European Union. And so they've been voting all across the, uh, Europe on the radical right to get rid of that because they've seen this collapse of the economies in so many European countries. So it's, I think we're just due for a big, big change. And it's gonna be fascinating to see what happens in America. I'm watching, I'm watching with bated breath. Okay, Lynn, let's go on to another area that is something I've thought about a lot. And I'm wondering if you've thought about this or if you have any, um, connections or things you'd like to share with the audience about this. And that is that one of the implications of the quantum field of the field is that we may be able to use the field to access virtually unlimited en energy. And certainly if you look at social justice, a lot of um, really powerful thinkers have put forth the idea that if we're ever really going to have social justice, that the means of the production of energy and the access to that kind of energy needs to dramatically shift. And uh, I've heard a lot over the years about various inventors and scientists and physicists and engineers using Tesla-based technologies and other technologies to develop devices that can help us tap into that quantum field to, to generate virtually unlimited energy and that many people feel that this already exists and that there's been a tremendous amount of suppression of these inventions. And I was wondering if this is something you've thought about and if so, whether there's anything you'd like to share with our listeners. Well, I have thought about it and I wrote about it a bit in the field in the sense that one of the heroes I wrote about in the field called Hal Putoff, who was a physicist who has worked with uh, NASA and Lockheed and a number of those other organizations, um, has an organization that's sole purpose is to look at whether or not you can, we can generate energy from the field. And the field, as uh, we were talking about, has this unfathomable amount of energy just sitting there in, in empty space caused by the back and forth passing of virtual particles from one particle to the other, like an endless game of tennis between all the subatomic particles and all the things in all the universe. So you can just imagine how much energy that is. Um, and many scientists have been trying to extract it because they it would, if they could, uh, give us a cosmic free lunch as Hal likes to call it, um, we'd be able to fly to distant galaxies with it because right now, if you tried to do that, you'd need a rocket as big as the sun. So it's been really important for a lot of scientists to try to do this. And Hal's organization um, in Texas, its sole purpose, as I say, is to look at new inventions like this. Now, the last time I 
contacted Hal, no one had actually come up with something that was viable as something that can be used universally. But that was some years ago, and it could well be uh, now that there are some more inventions that have taken that one stage further. Um, the thing we have to be careful about is this. Yes, there probably has been some suppression. There's, there's been some black projects that have been carried out by the likes of British Aerospace and NASA who are really interested in, in this because, of course, right now they rely on oil. And we all know oil is, you know, beginning to run out. So they're interested in it too. But it also, of course, completely shakes up the social order, as you as you implied, because right now, there uh, everything is made of oil, and there is a lot of price fixing and all the kinds of things that go on in our system that are immensely unfair. So the idea of having a cosmic free lunch would be amazing democratic form of energy. And it's, you know, very exciting that a lot of people are working on it. Um, I have heard a number of people claim to have something that is uh, free energy devices. I've heard many people claim that. I've heard many, many, many people claim that they've tapped into the zero point field. So far, I have not come across any evidence of it, but that does not mean to say that it's not there. For our listeners that would like to explore this further, do you have a website name or contact information for Hal Putoff? Well, Hal is um, in Austin, Texas, and I believe it's the... Um, Institute for the Advancement of Science or some such. And he is, he looks at, as I say, he looks at new inventions and um, he tries to evaluate them. Um, I'm not sure if he has a website and would be contactable. Okay. Um, but I think that there are, um, I think he's written about some things. So, Readers can Google him. His name is Harold Putoff, and he's written some articles in some general publications about what he's found. How do you spell his last name? It's P-U-T-H-O-F-F. Harold and then P-U-T-H-O-F-F. That's it. Putoff. Okay, Lynn, I really appreciate your thoughts on that. Uh, we're going to go on to another topic in just a minute, okay? Great. One thing that's kind of exciting in terms of kind of a David and Goliath kind of reality is that we had a little miracle here politically um, back in December is Congress extended for five more years a 30% tax credit for people who purchase solar for their home or for their business. Wow. So. So that's a really nice window of opportunity that we have here in the United States now. And I think you're going to see a massive move of homeowners and people who own commercial property in the United States over the next five years to solar because the government is giving the owner of the solar uh, system uh, dollar for dollar 30 percent back. That sounds fantastic. Wow. And so surprising, too, huh? Yeah, it's like a little miracle that... It uh, really is. Wow. Yeah. 
So I thought you might like to let your listeners or your readers know that. Um, Lynn, in the, I know you've got to go in about 10 minutes, uh, and I want to respect that. In the time that we have left, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about anything you're up to these days, anything you're particularly excited about, kind of where your energies are going, and also to make sure that you give our listeners um, contact information if they want to find out more about you and your work. Sure. Thank you. Um well, right now I have just I am just finishing my next book, which is called The Power of Eight. And what I've been doing since 2007, as I say, I was really interested in the whole idea of consciousness being an actual something with the capacity to, to create and change physical matter. And that kept nagging at me. And as I say, I, as I mentioned earlier, I kept wanting to say, OK, well, what can we actually do with this? And so that prompted me to not only write a book about the science of intention, which is the intention experiment, but also to engage my readers in an ongoing experiment. So we've run 29 experiments to date. What, what we would do is every so often I'd have a scientist. One of them was Gary Schwartz at the university, a psychologist at the University of Arizona, and Fritz Popp did one. and. Rustin Roy did one, and Konstantin Korotkov, who is a Russian physicist, University of St. Petersburg uh, Technical University. They all set up these very controlled experiments. And then I would invite my readers to come on my website and send an intention to whatever it was, whether it was water. I think we tried about, we had about something like eight or 10 water experiments and leaf experiments and seed experiments, see if we can make seeds grow faster. And, and then we did big, big experiments trying to lower violence in war-torn areas um, for at Sri Lanka, for the 10th anniversary of 9-11, um, and they worked. I mean, out of 29 experiments, I think 25 of them showed measurable, often significant uh, effects. I mean, they were just extraordinary. But I started getting interested, you know, and that, that had a lot of implications about the power of the mind, the power of the mind to connect virtually to objects, all kinds of things like that, entanglement, um, you know, non-locality. Um, but I was also interested in small groups. What happens when you get small groups, eight together, eight or 12? And so this book is really about intention um, with small groups and how it turns everything we think about the power of intention on its head. And so I can't really tell you too much about it. It's not out till about this time next year. Um, but I think it's going to be very exciting because it really is essentially proving miracles, I suppose. Um, and it's been a really exciting journey all this time to examine this from er intention from every area and to try to apply some science to it. And as well, um, to really ask some, some pretty searing questions about it. And as I mentioned before, I'm, you know, there's probably because of the work I do, that interesting place right between science and spirit, there's nothing that I hate more than unsubstantiated woo-woo. But I have to tell you that through all of these experiments, some of the biggest woo-woo was occurring right in front of me. And it was pretty, pretty amazing. So that's been something I've been really excited about. And as I say, just 
finishing up the last bits of it and handing it in next week. Um, and that will be out, I hope, January of 2017. Um, and I'm also going to carry on some big experiments. We have a big, big intention experiment that we're just starting to plan to try to lower violence in the Middle East. Um, and when I do these intention experiments on peace, I don't just have a meditation. We actually have a team of scientists who measure what happened before and afterward. Um, so we try to really demonstrate that it's had some sort of effect. And then we, I've been doing that, David, and I've been also had head down, just turning what doctors don't tell you with my husband from a newsletter, as it was for about 24 years to uh, 23 years, I think, to a magazine. So now it's an international magazine. So we're, we're excited about that. And it's just, it's just, we had it licensed in the States and weren't happy with the frequency. It wasn't coming out enough. So we took out, we took back the license and we're doing it ourselves in the States. So our first issue for that is coming out in March. Where can people get a hold of you? David, thank you for that. Um, for what doctors don't tell you, it's www.wddty.com. And um, for the, from everything else, the intention experiment, my work with the bond, my work with the field, lynnmctaggart.com. And Lynn has an E on the end, L-Y-N-N-E, and McTaggart is A-R-T at the end. Uh, one more question. Uh, you know, many people here are reporting, you know, kind of how stressful life is, and we're hearing from all sorts of angles how important it is for those of us that are wanting to serve how important it is for us to take care of our own self and to keep our own vibration clear and high. Is there anything you'd be willing to share about your own personal practices that you found particularly helpful for you in keeping your vibration clear and high? Yeah, it's a real simple one. Um, and I've done so much study into this too, but you know, one of the big problems with the self-help movement is just that, David. Um, everybody is so focused on themselves. Um, and I think that's probably one of the most dangerous things there is. I found a really great study that will kind of speak to this. Um, it was looking at two kinds of people and seeing how it, how it affected them. And one kind were people who had pursued a life of pleasure, you know, what we would consider the good life. And then there's another group that pursued a life of meaning and purpose and working for other people. And it was really interesting looking at them physiologically. The people who had pursued the life of pleasure and, and enjoyment, what we would think of as, you know, the people who were really doing what they want to do, had terrible immune system markers. They were off the charts. These people should be dropping like flies when they were full of inflammation. The other people, the people who had pursued a life of meaning, their lives were, were their, their uh, immune system markets were way down. They were healthy, healthy and were, looked like they were going to be, you know, hit all kinds of markers for longevity. So it's just about that. It's about doing for other people. I think it's, you know, we have a big danger in the self-help movement of focusing way too much on the self, on fixing this and fixing that, you know. They probably the simplest simplest practice is just doing something for somebody else, and that is 
has an amazing rebound effect on you. Well, you definitely have opened up a whole can of worms that could be a whole extra show. But uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's move toward bringing it to a close. Let me um, turn it over to you, Lynn, to just thank you and just give you an opportunity to share anything you would like to share just to complete your experience here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul for today and any final comments you'd like to say to me or to the listeners and we'll we'll close it out. Thank you, David. Well, you know, I think that one of the things that we feel so much is powerless. You know, we talked about the uh, presidential election and how the Congress is so broken and how we're in the states and how we feel that way around the world. And I think one of the biggest problems we do have is that we feel so terrified and, and so unable to do anything. Um, and one of the things that really spoke to me when I was writing The Bond was how much more powerful we are. Um, there was a wonderful situation with a woman called Marie who um, felt like we all do very powerless in her business. Um, and she, it was a typical dog-eat-dog -dog office, you know, where everybody was out for themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And so she thought to herself, well, what can I do? I'm not anybody important here. But she just got the idea of putting some money in a Coke machine and leaving it behind when she got her daily Coke and just leaving a little note saying, this Coke has been paid for. Keep the spirit alive and pay it forward. And that completely freaked out all of her fellow workers. They, you know, they started sending a email campaign around to find out who this little secret Santa was. And so Maria then upped her game. She went to an upstairs to the next floor and started leaving donuts every day with a little sign saying, you know, these donuts have been left for you. Keep the spirit alive and pay it forward. And this started a conversation day after day that went on over lunch, over dinner with the co-workers. And ultimately it became the one little catalyst that completely held a mirror up to that dog-eat-dog -dog office and changed the culture. So what I'm really trying to say is that there's such a power. And when I said do something for somebody else, the reason that I say that is that it's, it's like a, an infection. I mean, scientists, and I looked at this in the bomb too, scientists have, um, have found that when, you know, happy people are more likely to have happy friends, not because um, we self-select happy people to be with, but because of the natural spread of happiness. And that's the same with negative emotions like loneliness, people who are lonely are more likely to have lonely friends, but also altruistic activity. People who pay it forward are more likely to have other people who pay it forward. It is things like this happen down a social network. So if I'm kind to Peter, if I just do one act of kindness for Peter, he's more likely to be kind to Paul, he's more likely to be kind to Ed, who's more likely to be kind to Sophie. And so it goes. So you can see one little tiny act of consciousness can create a stampede of change. So I think the one thing I'd like to leave with everybody is not to feel so desperate and not to feel so powerless because you yourself hold so much power for change. By being conscious in your life, you can create a stampede of goodwill. 
It's not going to need a new president to do this. It's not going to need a new Congress, although that would be nice. All it needs is all of us just to say it doesn't have to be like this, not for one more day. Thank you very much. Lynn, thank you so much. So, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, where we do in-depth interviews with people doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. I'm Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and today we've had the pleasure and the privilege of being with Lynn McTaggart. So, Lynn, thank you so much. And with that, we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you, David. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to CuttingEdgeDoc.com. That's CuttingEdgeDoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.